1: Before we get into today's conversation, here's a quick message. This podcast is brought to you by pioneers of natural and organic health and beauty, Neil's Yard Remedies. Neil's Yard Remedies is the go-to destination for natural and organic health and beauty. I've been a fan of the brand since I was introduced to their iconic Wild Rose Beauty Balm by my mum when I was a teenager, and this deepened when I started learning about ethical and sustainable beauty. Creating products with people, planet and the soil in mind is something that Neal's Yard Remedies have prioritised for over 40 years. From becoming the first High Street retailer to be certified carbon neutral in 2008, to creating the first ever beauty collection to be certified organic by the Soil Association in 1991, Neal's Yard Remedies have led the way. Powered by organic ingredients, products are handcrafted in small batches at their award-winning eco-factory in Dorset. Set amongst acres of organic gardens, fields and meadows where some of their ingredients are grown, traveling just meters into the factory where they're turned into beautifully blended products. This is a brand who has stayed true to their ethos. I'm delighted to say that I have an exclusive 20% off site-wide discount code for all the Small Things listeners. Just head to NeilsYardRemedies.com or to a Neals Yard Remedies store and provide the code SMALLTHINGS20 at checkout. Full terms, conditions and exclusions can be found on their website. Poppy Acopcha is a trained horticulturalist and regenerative grower on a mission to inspire people to engage with and connect to the natural world. With her joyful Instagram content, Poppy teaches people how to grow and forage their own food whilst living and eating consciously for personal, community, and planetary health. As a young Black woman, Poppy also advocates for those who are underrepresented and marginalised in the world of horticulture and environmentalism. Poppy's been featured on Gardener's World on bbc 2 and is a regular contributor to the Royal Horticultural Society podcast. She recently relocated to Devon, where she has more growing space to work with and more links to a landscape of established, sustainably run farms and community gardens. I should say that as we were recording this episode, Poppy's adorable dog was sleeping very soundly next to her. So if you hear a few snuffles or snores, that is Poppy's dog. Right, let's get into today's episode. Here is Poppy Acrocher on all the small things. welcome to all the small things. I am very, very much looking forward to chatting with you today on this glorious bright blue morning. Let's start as we always do. I would love to hear if you have any rituals that you practice in the morning that help you feel grounded and start your day in the right way. Thank you for having
2: me. It's lovely to be speaking and yeah it's a beautiful blue day here in Devon as well. Any morning rituals? I'm actually terrible at maintaining a routine (laughs) so now we have a dog so he forces me to have um, a morning routine which is going out for a walk with him in the morning and I take a flask of hot water with me and then come home, have breakfast, he has breakfast and then I crack on with my day and usually on that walk either I'll just go quietly and that's lovely or I'll take an audio book or podcast with me and that will kind of like help to set the tone of my of my day
1: I wonder if your like knowledge on the seasons and the planet and nature alters also how you see routine and structure like because nature isn't is nature routine I don't know (laughs) That's a good question. I'd say that it kind of is and kind
2: of isn't. I mean, there's like the baseline of like the seasons, which everything follows. But I mean, there's a lot of chaos. And I think that does kind of add to the routine element, which is that if I've got writing to do, I'll wait and store that up to do on a wet day or a really cold day. Um, If the weather's good, then I'll be out. So I suppose there is an element of kind of responding to what's out of my control (laughs) outside.
1: I love that. Um, Let's talk about your life growing up and the kind of things that shaped you. You were born in London and then you moved to Johannesburg at age six. What were some of your strongest memories of your childhood and how did they shape you as a person?
2: I always say that it's really interesting because growing up in London, I mean, it's like a big city, of course, but I didn't really have memories of the urban landscape. All my memories from childhood in London are like being in a bush or (laughs) looking at butterflies with my mum or prodding slugs and snails, getting really muddy in puddles. I mean, I think that that kind of says a lot that, you know, little human in a massive urban sprawl and those are the things that rang out for me. And then when we moved to South Africa, I mean, it was an incredible, incredible lifestyle that we had there because we had kind of access to huge, beautiful gardens and so much fresh incredible food I was at a Steiner school but the kind of weird reality of that as I've grown up and understood like the context which we were living in is that we were going to South Africa with British money and so that meant that we were able to live a different kind of lifestyle that would be able to live in the UK and also it was only freshly post apartheid that we were going there with a mixed race family my mum's white my dad's black Nigerian and um that in itself also brought a lot of kind of challenges, I suppose, to our family and also being exposed to kind of the very real realities of what apartheid does to a country and what huge wealth gap does to a country. So I was kind of like seeing that from the age of six to 12. And I think if I saw that now, I'd be so devastated that it would almost be like less useful than seeing it as a child, because as a child, I think that there's like a bit of breathing space to take these things on as oh they're just normal and then as you grow up you understand it better and I think that that has really really impacted my understanding of justice and equality and the importance of ethical systems in society so yeah I think South Africa gave to me both a really really strong connection and love for land because we had such a wild life in the garden, like one of my most vivid memories would be me and my brother and sister climbing up this massive mulberry tree and getting covered in mulberry juice, like as if it was blood and running back inside the house, like really hyperactive on this sugar from these berries, which are just like so sweet. So this like very intense uh, love for the land from physical experiences in tandem with like a very strong sense of justice, um, which kind of followed me.
1: So were you in South Africa I'm assuming maybe for one of your parents work? My dad grew up in Nigeria till he was 12 14ish
2: and he wanted us kids to like experience growing up in Africa. At the time going to Nigeria wasn't an option and we had some family in South Africa already so that's why we ended up there. Dad was actually working his job was still in London, so he was kind of like toing and froing and kind of doing old school virtual working, which involved massive computer and like a landline, not Zoom or anything.
1: And being at a Steiner school, I've read in articles that you've done that you were a very creative person, seemingly from the outset. You made your own clothes and you seem like you were very, very artistic. Was that kind of guided along by the Steiner school? Steiner education is interesting because it's kind of like
2: very much about allowing children to develop at their own pace and really encouraging skills outside of the three R's. I think they're called reading, writing, arithmetic. So I do think that that has had an impact on me. And I think that it's actually something that I see is really valuable in our time, because I think that we're facing a, a moment in our history where we really need people which have been allowed to cultivate a sense of imagination and play and creativity, because ultimately those are the kind of skills that we need to kind of conjure up an alternative to what we're living now. So I feel, yeah, really grateful to have had that sort of childhood experience in Steiner. At 12, I went into mainstream education in the UK and it was just such a culture shock. The difference between kind of like, you know, us all just loving school, loving learning Desperate for homework versus it's not cool to love your teachers anymore. And you know, you probably should hand your homework in late, otherwise you get bullied. And I learned that very quickly. (laughs) So I definitely had a good time at Steiner education. But I mean, it's a funny one because it's not quite so regulated. Some Steiner schools, I've, you know, I have friends who had terrible, terrible times. So I think I had, I was very lucky. The school that I went to in South Africa was amazing.
1: Where did your aspirations of wanting to become the prime minister come in at what age was that and is that true (laughs) you've done some like really deep diving into
2: like (laughs) old old interviews yeah I think I wrote that in a in an interview like way at the beginning of my like modeling career that aspiration was when I was like 14 15 when I'd like fresh come back from South Africa really full of like you know, something needs to be done in the world and none of the adults seem to be doing anything about it. So I should probably grow up to be a prime minister to fix these things. (laughs) Now I cannot think
1: of a more
2: horrible job to have. Someone's got to do it, (laughs) but not me. Which is
1: a whole podcast in itself, you know, how we're kind of, I think so many of us who, you know, feel like we want to see huge, huge change in our political system. We're not willing to get into politics because it looks like it's one of the worst, um, horrendous jobs, especially for women, especially for women of colour. So I will plan a podcast with a politician (laughs) about that. Um, (laughs) Yeah, no, please do. That would be amazing. um, Let's talk about modelling, because you were a model for a really long time, a really successful model. When were you first scouted and how did that all come about?
2: I was scouted... When I was a teenager, I was at a festival. And then it started properly when I was about when I was 18, uh, was meant to be going to university, ended up not going to university, didn't have a plan. So went to London and started working, imagining that I'd just save up for a gap year. But (laughs) that's not the nature of the beast. I got pulled in and very quickly was like, I'm not going to uni anymore. And to begin with, it was really exciting. But it didn't take long for it to be not exciting anymore (laughs) and um, the kind of reality of the fashion industry started to kind of set in and I mean I think that I had like a bit of a more sensitive radar to it already I suppose because when I first started modeling my dad was like Poppy are you sure you have so much to offer the world beyond selling people stuff yeah so it didn't take long for me to be like actually yeah my
1: dad was right and I need to I don't need to rebel anymore (laughs) That's really interesting. You work with some pretty mega brands, including Vivian Westwood, Chloe, Alberta Ferretti. What was it like for you working in the modeling industry? And what impact did it have on you? I mean, working with some of those brands like Vivian Westwood, I mean, I I met
2: her and, you know, when I talk about the fashion industry at large, I don't mean the individuals. There are so many absolutely incredible, super powerful, really inspiring people like Vivian Westwood that I met, and yeah I thought they were amazing but the system itself is just so damaging for not only planet but also people and as I was kind of like experiencing the ill effects of living a life that was like just so fast and extractive on me as a person like as an individual I was exhausted all the time super stressed you know traveling constantly which means you don't have like kind of base feeling and all my friends around me I was seeing the same kind of like symptoms of like stress overwork, and this kind of weird relationship with work where you are a commodity so that was going on and then in tandem with that I was starting to understand more about the climate emergency and the role fashion plays in it and kind of different systems of exploitation and I was at some moment was kind of like oh actually this System, which is hurting me on a personal level, is doing exactly the same thing on a global planetary level and to all the other people involved in it, too. And that was kind of the moment where I was like, oh, OK, something's got to change. Like, I can't continue in this because I'm getting sick. It's making other people sick, too. So at that point, I was kind of searching around for alternative Things to do, how was I going to make money? Eventually, I was kind of dabbling more and more into like trying to get myself healthier. And at some point, that became understanding about food and organic food and then how organic food is produced. And at that point, I was like, oh, that's the root of it. That's where I want to go back to. Through fashion, I was really experiencing this really intense disconnect in that, like, I'm selling people a product that I don't know where it came from or who made it. They don't know me or who I am or or even who made it it's like this really long diluted chain that eventually the product gets to the consumer and there's no sense of connection that was something that i was really really craving and i felt like in that kind of long long chain the first stage is the land no matter whether it's a petrochemical fiber or whether it's cotton grown like ultimately someone's got to engage with land to get that out And so that's kind of like, I suppose, where it boiled down to for me. I was like, I want to go right back and see where
1: it all begins. So what steps did you then take to kind of, you know, learn more and train as a horticulturalist? I started
2: reading and reading and reading. That's where I went first, books. And then um, lots and lots of YouTube. And then eventually I was like, yeah, I want to do some courses. So I went part-time, did also some time in community gardens. And I'd stopped flying, which was <laughs> really challenging i think that was kind of one of the final nails in the coffin because most of my work was international i never really worked in london and it just felt like so wrong to keep flying i felt like i'd flown enough for like a whole country in my like five years modeling or four years So then I got to a point where I'd done my training, done loads of learning, and I needed to kind of like take the leap into how can I stop making money from fashion. And that's when I started exploring social media and whether that could be a kind of like bridge. And then the kind of final push was when COVID hit and the fashion industry just came crashing to the ground. No one could travel or move or do anything. That was the final, final thing that pushed me out of that industry, I suppose
1: why do you think growing and gardening is so important when it comes to the future of our planet and what was it about it that really grips you
2: I find that like a really important and really big question because it's like got so many prongs to it I suppose ultimately I guess going back to kind of the conversation about how land is kind of the the root of our lives essentially growing and gardening even on a small scale, helps us to connect to that reality that we're ultimately dependent on Earth, which I think that can become quite like an abstract concept in our modern lives where, you know, it gets dark outside at five or whatever, we switch on the light, and we're no longer dependent on on the planet. (laughs) We've kind of, like, created an alternative. And I think that when we start engaging with growing, whether that's just gardening on a small scale or in a window box, it reconnects us with the reality that we are actually fully at the mercy of this planet and the weather, the seasons. And I think that's a really important thing to understand because that understanding that we are collaborators with Earth is like, I think, really integral to like a kind of culture based on human and planetary care. Secondary to that, the climate crisis kind of comes in tandem with a cultural crisis like a crisis of disconnection and to me learning to grow food is a really really powerful tool in reconnecting to place to seasonality to the reality that summer can't last forever which is the way that we live currently just like this eternal growth when you kind of look at natural living systems it just doesn't occur so by growing we start to learn it offers a lot of metaphors and a lot of models for how we can live in a truly sustainable way, whether that's looking at kind of real tangible experience of circularity, like maybe you kind of look at how the kitchen connects to the garden and creates like a zero waste system or how a tree connects with the soil. Like there's just so many kind of complex ways in which we can observe that Uh, whether that's considering diversity. So in a growing space, a healthy growing space, there's so much diversity and that's really important to maintain its resilience we understand that diversity is really important for kind of like rooting out of climate catastrophe as well, like diverse voices, diverse opinions. So I think that there's so much that growing and gardening can teach us. For me, composting is like one of the biggest metaphors there is because it's this incredible space where something that can become toxic waste, like food waste or any organic matter, when put on landfill creates leachate and uh, produces uh, greenhouse gases. But when we put it on a compost heap, it becomes this incredibly powerful resource which can then be used to grow more food. And there's just something so illustrative there of like, it doesn't have to be the way that it is now. There, there are alternative models and systems that we can tap into that already exist, that are already being modelled to us, that don't lead to ill health for both people and planet. So I think that that's some of the reasons that gardening is really important. And then aside from that, I mean, like when we look at the climate crisis, Biodiversity and land are huge parts of how we would need to mitigate against it. Healthy biodiversity helps to kind of like mitigate against some of the more extreme effects of climate change and climate change negatively impacts biodiversity. So when we start to engage with growing in land, the kind of like complexity of climate change outside of just carbon counting, I think is really brought home. And then the last thing would be that growing food or anything is just good for us it just feels good and there's so much science now coming out about how powerful it is engaging with a growing space so you know all the climate and bigger picture kind of metaphor stuff aside it literally is healthy for us good for our mental health good for our bodies good for our gut microbiome so there's like not a bad thing there (laughs)
1: Something I just want to pick up on that that you spoke about just now was how summer summer isn't endless and like we can't be constantly growing and it is wild to me that that is how under capitalism, how we view society right and how we view the economy it's got to endlessly grow and so much of what you're talking about is like how we need to be learning from nature and how nature learns to reset and rest I read an amazing book recently called wintering
2: oh my gosh yes (laughs) it's
1: so good so good (laughs) that was my my book last winter yeah looking to nature and learning from it in terms of the seasons is so important have you kind of changed how you view things like I don't know productivity and growth since you've been learning more about the planet well, before I answer that, I kind of wanted to pull out a
2: strand, which is that ultimately growing teaches us that we are nature, like this thing that we're kind of causing pain and suffering to, you know, like ecosystems, etc. We are part of that. So it's essentially self-harm what we're doing. And, and I think that there's a lot of kind of like dialogue, especially with the kind of rise of rewilding the sense of like, oh, humans are bad for Earth. When ultimately, like when we kind of particularly look at like, older and indigenous ways of engaging with land like it's always positive it increases diversity and health and and i think one really like nice example of that in the uk is like hedgerows which are not something that happened just like by being left alone humans create that and humans get so many resources out of that whether that's firewood or medicine or food and then at the same time it increases biodiversity so much and is really important habitat and forage for other creatures too so I feel like that's kind of like one of the one of the other bits that that growing teaches us that we can have a positive impact on the earth which is not a popular kind of narrative currently and I think that's important and then in terms of productivity I feel like there's often this like funny edge to like um, sustainability or like slow movements, which kind of implies that in order to be sustainable or slow, productivity or efficiency flatlines. And I don't know that that is true. Like, I mean, in the garden, there is huge productivity, spring, summer, like things are going crazy. Like it is exhausting, like the seed sowing, putting things out, making sure everything's like alive and maybe it's a different kind of busyness it's not that a sustainable lifestyle or engaging with land means that we just sit there quietly watching constantly like for me it involves engaging being very active very physical and it is exhausting but not in a way that's depleting it's exhausting in a way where you go to bed and you're like oh that was a good day of work and I'm gonna sleep hard tonight it's not like the kind of exhausting you get after hours and hours and hours on a laptop trying to meet a deadline And I think that that's an important note, which is that don't think a sustainable lifestyle necessarily about just sitting still. Because I think that that sitting still edge can kind of dip it into a world of privilege where it's like, oh,
1: you need to have time to just sit in front of the fire with your feet up and read a book for hours and hours and hours. Thank you for explaining that so well. That's really beautifully put. And actually, if we look to nature, right, nature is abundant and there is plenty for all of us there is an abundance in nature that is you know there for us as well if we see ourselves as interconnected with it it's so interesting end of summer uh, where I live there are lots and lots of blackberries and you know every morning I'd go and pick some blackberries for my breakfast I had the weirdest sensation when I was doing it it felt as though I was cheating the system because I am so used <laughs> to paying for food, I don't feel like I am entitled to take from nature and to not pay for it. What do you think that's saying? The first thing that I kind
2: of, that kind of came to mind as you were talking was, I think that a, a relationship with land that is really truly sustainable and that like we and the land can live in harmony, like for the foreseeable does involve a form of payment and I think that because we're so divorced from a relationship with land it's sometimes hard to know like what does that payment look like like what how do you pay a blackberry bush (laughs) but I do think that there is responsibility in maintaining tending caring and that's something that I think a lot of us don't know how to do and then I suppose the other element is kind of like when we kind of look at systems of power, food and land ultimately kind of are central to those systems. And that's another reason that I think food growing is just so important. It takes us down right into the kind of one of the key things we need for survival and back to the place in which power gathers, (laughs) you know, who who owns the land, who has access to the land, who controls the food systems. Um, And ultimately for me that is hugely radical to try to create alternatives from those which exist
1: currently and dominate most of the Western world. This leads us really nicely on to talking about your own gardening. Um, I've heard you refer to yourself as more a steward of your garden. Um, You moved to Devon. What initial steps did you take to learning about your garden in this space. How did you yeah, how did you start?
2: Yeah, um, well I was really lucky that my garden is my garden, so I could take as long as I wanted to like learn the space. There's no pressure of like I need to make it a productive space to make money out of it or something like that. So that meant that I had the luxury of being able to like watch the space for about a year and a half rather than kind of like being like, okay, I want to garden, go in there, change things up, move everything around. It meant that I was seeing what plants already exist there, what creatures call it their home before me, and then trying to work with the kind of forces at play in the space, like for example, understanding how water moves through the space and how the wind moves through the space. Um, I realised that it can develop a bit of a kind of like wind tunnel effect because it's like long and narrow and so... I've put the greenhouse kind of halfway through the garden, which helps to kind of like buffer the wind that kind of whistles down sometimes, or like noticing where the sun moves through the space. So there's areas which pretty much remain frosted all day in the winter. They don't get sun in the um, winter because the sun's so low. That means that I'm not necessarily going to put crops that are going to be overwintering in those spaces and would prefer for those crops to be in places which get more sunlight in the winter so there's like lots of kind of like elements that can't be changed I can't move where the sun is I can't change how the wind blows and I can't change how the rain falls so it's I think important with a growing space to kind of like note those key things the unchangeables and then work with them rather than always battling against them because otherwise it can be really hard gardening and can take the wind out of your sails when everything just keeps going wrong and you can't understand why and more often than not it's because we're trying to fight with things that we can just not change (laughs) and we're better off just like going with their flow rather than trying to impose ours yeah so in the garden space I wanted to be producing food and some of that is annual veg but then some of it's also perennial veg and herbs That's plants that live for more than three years. Annual plants are plants that you would sow in spring. They do their whole life cycle in one year and then you get seed again. And then you sow them again the following year, whereas perennials stay in the ground. They're a lot more drought hardy, a lot of them, because their roots develop like really um, extensive structures which can access water. And they're great for biodiversity because they just kind of like stay in place. And also a lot less time-consuming. So I grow a lot of different herbs and some perennial veg. And yeah, that was kind of like what I was trying to design into the space, which had been kind of left to its own devices for like, I want to say it looked like it had been left like maybe
1: four years. What kind of things, did, was? is there anything you've added? Is there anything that you, have you made any mistakes? Like what have been some of your learning since you've been there? Well, biggest mistake would have been that
2: I well I don't know I don't think I actually did anything wrong it was just unlucky I moved a climbing rose last winter um and you do that in the winter when the plant's dormant but it was so big and old that it was really hard to dig it out and I I kind of like let the job take two days so the rose like half dug out and then the next day I dug the rest out and then planted it the following day and so I think that it wasn't very happy with that process and that rose was really really old so there was definitely a sense of like okay I'm gonna move this grandma rose and I better like do a good job because she's been here way longer than me and next spring she just like didn't wake up again and I was devastated I was like oh god so I just like kind of everything kind of grew, grew up over her through spring and summer. And this winter I've been kind of like inspecting. And I noticed that actually she has shot up a shoot. So something's going on. I think maybe like the, all the old growth died back. It was all just too much of a shock and the roots must have persisted. And now she's like taking another shot at life. So that's really exciting. That was a big mistake, which has turned out well. Amazing. I hope. Yeah. Um, Some changes. I've added a couple
1: of ponds in. They're two of the best things you can do for biodiversity. Interesting, adding in water in some regard.
2: Yes, it doesn't have to be a pond. Even just like a bowl of water can help. And one of them is like dug into the ground with like, you know, edge plants and different levels. And then the other one's just an old ceramic shower tray that I like bunged the the drainage hole. And that's just sitting on the surface of the soil with some plants and entry and exit points. And it's really nice and easy to do. I feel like that's
1: one of the nicest, easiest ways to increase biodiversity in a garden. You briefly mentioned composting earlier. Can you talk to us a little bit about how composting works?
2: Yes. So composting is a process of decomposition where you have like organic matter go in and compost as in the decayed form comes out and it is basically the process of decomposition which is aided by different bacteria and fungi and all sorts of different insects like um, worms and earwigs and centipedes. The, The process means that the organic matter rather than decaying anaerobically so without air and turning into like a sludgy mess which produces methane It decays aerobically, so with air, and um, you're left with an incredibly rich resource which can help feed the soil. Um, It's high in carbon, um, has some nutrients, not tons and tons, but it's basically a feed for the soil. You can then spread it um, on the soil and it helps to sustain the life in soil, which is really, really important for healthy plants the life in the soil being various bacteria and fungi as well and they form relationships with the plants underground so the plants will give them sugars and they'll give the plants things like information and nutrients that they can't normally access so compost is like a really key part of maintaining healthy soil for plants and in my garden I have a compost heap which gets kitchen waste gets garden waste also gets clothes but it just for me is really exciting because it kind of reignites that like thing of like came from the land, returns from the land, the importance of that connection and that cycle.
1: For listeners who obviously can't see me, my mouth is a little bit open right now. What fibres have you been composting?
2: Um, cotton, hemp, uh, wool. And that is in the form of underwear that's like gotten all full of holes and shouldn't want <laughs> wear anymore, it's not so sexy. <laughs> um, socks, um duffel bag that had been patched
1: up so many times that it was no longer holding anything gosh this compost Um, must be thriving to be decomposing this material how long does it how long has it been taking well the stuff I
2: put on in summer only took a few months and then there's some stuff like for example the duffel bag strap which is really thick and that's been in there now for a year and it's only just starting to disintegrate some of the underwear I've put in the elastic obviously isn't decomposing so it's kind of I don't know that for me there's something really thrilling and like interesting about seeing like how I don't know again it's that tangible connection with the reality that some of the stuff we have just is forever now
1: <laughs> and with the climate crisis worsening growing food is going to become more important than ever before how can we break barriers to ensure that growing food and tending to plants becomes accessible to everyone? And why do you think this is so vital?
2: The the kind of key barriers are time, money and education. We don't have the skills, we don't have the time to learn the skills and we don't have the money to pay for them. Then once we do have the skills, we don't necessarily have the time to invest in creating a job out of them. So I think that a lot of it for me is about creating educational opportunities whether that's in school or beyond that come with bursaries or a way that people can study that don't have kind of like other financial means and then I suppose the other element of it is incentivization to try and I mean ultimately like a lot of land based jobs aren't necessarily well paid because as a society we don't value them like when we kind of look at the true cost of food, the farmer so often, I mean, it's it's the same as with fashion, right? It's like the farmer at the end of the supply chain is the one who is out of pocket. They're the ones that get exploited. And I think that, you know, ultimately a kind of like rebalancing an understanding of where the value lies will be really important in the process of encouraging people into kind of food growing in a job capacity. Because at the moment, like it's hard work, supermarkets make it harder, I think that there needs to be a big shift to make it seem appealing. And I do think that shift is happening. I mean, I was at the, um Oxford Real Farming Conference in January, and it's really exciting hearing all the different kind of like people that are entering into food production in all its different like shapes and forms, whether that's like bigger scale agriculture or whether that's like smaller market garden CSA type structures. And I think that change is happening. I think that it's being driven partly by demand because, you know, us as consumers are getting more clued up and we don't want to be part of that system.
1: I know that you're really passionate about community gardening. So for someone who is, you know, fresh to this and really wants to learn more about about gardening and growing, what would be your, your initial advice?
2: For me, community gardens are amazing because... Well, they're free. They're fun. Uh, You meet people. So I think, you know, as with all kind of movements, social movements, it's really important to have like connections with other people. And you learn so much, particularly in community gardens and kind of like urban spaces. There's so much cultural knowledge colliding about food growing and seed. And that's really exciting. Yeah. So I think for me, community growing projects are one of the best kind of starting places and often can kind of like point in the direction of other different kind of like educational sort of routes and then if you're somebody that like is like oh I want to be more involved with growing I don't want to do it as my job then community garden again is amazing um because it offers that like connection in a very like hobby oriented way and that's I think really important as well. One of the things that came up quite a few times at the conference and what I've been like mulling over a lot in my head is this idea that, you know, what if everybody was in some capacity involved with growing food? Like how that would change our relationship, not only to food, but to fibre and so many other things that come from land through the process of agriculture. So, yeah, I would really advocate for engaging with growing in some capacity. I think it's really important.
1: Thank you. Before we get into our final questions, I'm wondering what has been one of your most impactful learnings from your experience with your gardening and growing so far and what it's taught you or if it's taught you a lesson about kind of life more generally?
2: Um, It would probably be that death and decay leads to life. It's reassuring in so many ways, whether that is in dealing with like the reality of life and death in our day-to-day lives or whether that is dealing with like changes in our lives or the more like systemic changes that are required like this kind of cyclical thing that happens has a lot of comfort in it but then I suppose like in a in a more like practical sense the thing that I think I've learned from gardening that has really informed my like understanding of the world is about land access and how that kind of really underpins a lot of the kind of justice issues that we see today
1: and how that sprung out of the enclosures in the UK. Because so much of our land in the UK is privately owned, right? Like we're talking like a lot of lot of land, which we just can't access. 92% of the
2: land in the UK is not free to, to go into. Then the other stat, which is really mad, is that... Our gardens in the UK, like all together, cover more land than all of our nature reserves in England combined. What? Isn't that weird? Because they seem small and gardening seems like a pet hobby. But when you start to see like how land is distributed, it's like, oh, hang on a second. There's actually like huge, a huge, huge kind of like
1: resource pool right there. Are there people pushing to have this vast amount of land redistributed? I mean right to Rome I feel like that's
2: getting a lot of they're getting a lot of press at the moment and then a book that's really great which kind of like covers all these kind of like land issues is Nick Hayes book of trespass and then Guy Shrubsole's, who owns England um, those are two really great books all about kind of enclosures and land access and how the kind of like model of enclosures that happened in the UK sort of was exported globally and kind of has led to the kind of colonial project that we kind of experience and live
1: in today they sound absolutely fascinating thank you for recommending those i will leave them in the show notes shifting gears how would you feel about a quick fire round yeah that sounds fine (laughs) (laughs) quick fire with poppy wake up early or have a lion wake up early tea or coffee tea in the trees or by the sea in the trees Snowdrops or bluebells? Snowdrops. Roses or daffodils? Daffodils. Fiction or non-fiction? Well, both, I don't know. (laughs) Podcasts or TV series? Podcasts. Sunrise or sunset? Sunset. And finally, routine or spontaneity? spontaneity (laughs) and finally the question I ask all of my guests what is one thing you hope your future self will have achieved my kind of like
2: driving force is that ultimately I'd like to own or have like prolonged access to a piece of land that I can start to run courses and workshops on for people that don't normally necessarily feel like represented in land work or food growing Um, So that is what I hope that I do achieve, and I think
1: I will achieve it. (laughs) (laughs) That is wonderful, and I'm sure you will as well. Poppy, we have covered a lot of ground, Yes, pun intended. (laughs) Um, I'm really, really grateful for your time, the way that you've connected all of these interconnected issues, and yeah, for just giving us your time in this space. I'm really, really grateful. Thank you.
2: No, that's a pleasure. It's nice to speak outside of, like, gardening worlds.
1: (laughs) (laughs) yeah to someone who is very very nascent and has a lot to learn
2: (laughs) no thank you for having me
1: Thank you so much for listening to this episode. If you're new to this podcast, there are plenty more conversations that I think you will enjoy prior to this. And as always, if you have enjoyed this series, please do feel free to share it with a friend or on your Instagram stories, tagging me at Venisha LaManna and tagging the show at ATST Podcast. I will see you very soon. Ever catch
0: yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well.